Consummate Athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement. And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life. Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes. We're excited to have you along for the ride. Welcome back. Welcome back. Peter, how's it going? It's going good. We're getting into the fall here in uh, Ontario, which is when I usually start walking more and and stop riding my bike quite as much. Yeah, it's one of those uh, annoying times of year where I get the realization that I really like warm weather during the summer. I'm always like, oh, I can't wait for fall. It's going to be amazing. And then yesterday, for the first time, it dropped to like 35 degrees or I guess like two or three degrees. Yeah, we're approaching that that time where frost is a concern. Yeah, yeah. And it was raining, and suddenly, uh, suddenly, fall did not feel quite as uh, pleasant. So it was my first run in tights this year, or right. not this year, but I guess like this this season, we'll say. Which is good. Keep those knees from getting grumpy in the cold weather. Uh, I'm getting old. I don't know about <laughs> that. I think that's true for most people. Yeah, yeah. So that was it. Was good though. We I ran with uh, a couple friends on the trails and got nice and muddy. Took like a solid slide on my butt down a hill. Right. Um, but you know my my run form is coming along. We'll we'll say. I actually am happy. Like I can still feel my knee, and people might remember a couple years ago I had some knee issues that kind of made me stop running for a couple months and. You know, they pretty much resolved, I would say, and I'm pretty diligent about like the stretching and exercises I do for them and everything, but I can still feel them every once in a while, especially as it gets colder. So I was happy that yesterday they weren't bothering me at all. Yeah, and I guess that's ultimately what we're talking about today with today's guest. Um, but it, it is one of those tricky things with running, right? It's very easy. It's, you know, one of the riskiest sports in a lot of ways, right? I think like, yeah, surveys show anywhere between like 80 and like 96% of runners have well, some kind of injury. Well, I think it's like we'll get injured over like a year or two or something, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of those. It's a statistic, but... And the injuries can be range, right? Like yours was not like debilitating, right? Like you didn't, you didn't have stress fractures, but certainly like things like stress fractures and compartment syndrome. And, you know, you'll have people with shoulder stuff that comes from running and different back stuff, you know, from the compression. I am so excited because today's guest and I talk about that stuff a lot. We don't just talk about like running stride and like lower body. We actually really get into upper body stuff. Yeah. And I think Jay Dackery. Yeah, and uh, he's, a, he's a biomechanist. He's an expert biomechanist. He's a physiotherapist. He's been involved with a lot of like actual high-performance training as well, right? So he's got this sort of multifaceted background that I think is, is what caught my eye first. I actually did a couple courses with him on sort of different like running injuries and different things over the years. And then he actually released a book that I got just because I re- recognized his name. It seemed like a good book. Um, and it's called Running Rewired, which I would recommend it if you're looking for like a core program, really for any anyone listening who's doing, you know, our consummate athlete sort of lifestyle. It's a great mix of like it shows you really simple pictures and, and examples. And it, it ranges from sort of like your traditional core stuff with some good like tweaks on exercises um, up to like more like kettlebell swing, squat, lunge, like strength training. And, and it provides that in a program pretty nicely, I think. It also has one exercise, which I will bring up now, is toe yoga. So it's like this thing where you basically lift your toes individually. And I have had 
such like I love smoke and mirrors type exercises and this one just strikes me as one that like seems super simple but if you like are standing and you try and lift your toes I'll put a link to Jay demonstrating this as well in the show notes Um, but it's it's been really good for a host of different sort of foot ankle lower leg injuries yeah, it's, it's actually one that I do in every yoga class that I teach. We always, in mountain pose, do a little bit of toe yoga in there. Yeah, yeah, I, and he has this variation where you, like, hold the toes to sort of help, like, your big toe, like, you sort of, like, provide resistance for the big toe to press down. Um, so it's really, he's got some variations on that, too. But anyhow, that one's really, really good and sort of helps break out of that, you know, cycling shoe where your, your foot is, like, crammed in cycling shoes and high heels and, like, really narrow shoes, and then your toes become basically useless right but there's all these little muscles a lot of muscles in your foot uh, that are pretty important right and and then sort of like affect upstream into your your legs and hips yeah I really enjoyed talking to him because I you know I I waffle on the run stride situation right like one study will come out saying that whatever stride you naturally do is the best stride for you and then one will come out and say no it's this cadence or it's this type of stride or like don't heel strike always heel strike i don't think anyone says always heel strike but you guys know what i mean it's it can be really kind of confusing and i'd say he has a very moderate approach as far as the biomechanics yeah here's here's some tweaks to make to feel better but there's not necessarily like one exact way that everyone should be running Right, which I think is in line ultimately with Greg Lehman's, you know, idea that there isn't, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't matter as much as we think it does as long as sort of we progress gradually. And you know, I think in a lot of ways is it's in line with this, right? Yeah. So this is a super fun conversation. We sort of go all over the place. And if you're one of those, especially cyclists who's taking up running for the fall or you're, you know, a runner just trying to figure out ways to improve without necessarily having to train harder, faster, longer. I think this is a super important episode for, you know, sort of figuring out how to uh, how to make your training more efficient and effective without uh, adding adding a lot of work or in the cyclist turned runner case, uh, you know, hopefully helping you avoid injury in the process. Yeah. That's ultimately our goal here, right? Is to try and add these different sports and modes so that you can thrive in different weathers or when you are, you know, feeling sore from the bike or, or, you know, you're traveling. Right. So I think it's very worthwhile that we all sort of edge into walking, running, you know, ambulating on two feet and and how far we take that may vary between people, right? It might just be 30 second runs, you know, during a strength workout or or during a hike or, or something like that too. Yes. All right. Well, I think it's time for us to ambulate on two feet or four feet in the case of DW and get him out on a walk. So enjoy this conversation with Jay Dykery. Uh, check out the show notes over at consummateathlete.com. And yeah, enjoy the show. Uh, so Jay, welcome to the Consummate Athlete podcast. I'm so excited we get to do this. Thanks for having me, Molly. It'd be a great chat. Yeah. So uh, as I was kind of digging into your background, I realized you're actually kind of a consummate athlete yourself in that you do a whole lot of different activities, it sounds like. Uh, so what is your, what's your personal athletic background? Uh, yes, I've, I've, I mean, I think I'm like a big dabbler. Uh, that's what <laughs> yeah. we love. Like, that's our, that's our whole thing. Yeah. So I, um, I... Uh, yeah, I, I swam as a kid, right? So it was my, my main sport. Uh, I definitely played uh, soccer and baseball um, seasonally, but definitely spent the majority of my time in the pool. And uh, you have a lot of time to sit there and get into your own head when you're swimming because you don't talk to anybody. So mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that, that definitely laid a foundation of, I guess, just 
discipline to kind of you know, put some effort in. But um, yeah, when I when I, I after, yeah I I did not swim in college. I basically had some offers, and I told my parents, "There's no way I still have the mental, uh, you know, mental drive to keep swimming." I just was kind of burned out. So uh, I pretty much became a meathead at that point in time. I spent every day in the gym and was all worried about my bench press and squats. That's all I cared <laughs> about for years. And then one day I hit some arbitrary goals I had myself, and I was like, "Okay, like you know, I'm not that big of a person, right? I'm like five seven on a good day, and like." <laughs> Uh, you know, I was putting some good weight up. I'm like, who cares? Right. So I was like, all right, I'm done with this. And, uh, and then kind of shifted back into some different things, started running a little bit more again. And then, um, and I ran in high school too, but then, uh, yeah, then got back into, uh, bike racing a little bit and then, uh, started running more, did the triathlons for a number of years and then pivoted to Xterra for a long time. And then, uh, I moved to Virginia and I found mountain biking and it took up most of my time. And then I started backcountry skiing and then, uh, adding on surfing on top of that and then yeah just kind of dabbling in everything so it's been been fun ride and I just uh I'm always a big fan of doing more different stuff I love that so much and it's it's so funny kind of all of those all of those sports are sort of my it, very similar trajectories other than the fact that I was not a swimmer in school but I was a meathead in college um yeah. <laughs> and did kind of all of those things, although I admit the surfing really only happened when that movie Blue Crush came out in like the early 2000s and I was a teenager, but that's 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 neither here nor there. Anyway, nice. um, so how, how did you end up where running is sort of the, the main focus of your, your research? I mean, I know you've worked with a bunch of other, you know, you worked with the Cycling Federation, you've done some golf work and stuff like that, but running seems to be sort of the core of where you're excited about research. How did that come about? Well, I think, yeah, it's, so again, I mentioned I swam a lot in college, right? I mean, excuse me, in, in um, grade school, and high school. And then, you know, when I, when I was in high school, I was basically kind of told by my high school, I needed to start running because all swimmers were in great shape, right? We had these huge engines and um, I, I just got hurt. I mean, left and right, I mean, every running injury in the world, I got hurt because, you know, my heart and lungs had gotten so developed from, you know, swimming two to four hours a day for years uh, that, you know, once I... You know, you, you look at what that does to you, right? All the positive things with that, and then you look at the fact that it doesn't load your connective tissues, it doesn't load uh, your joints, doesn't load your uh, muscles in the same way. And so, uh, I was in a position where I was really frustrated because you, know, you walk into a doctor's office as a you know a high school athlete, you're like, oh, I have this pain. I'm like, oh, well, you shouldn't run because if running's hurting you, something's not. Just keep swimming. And I mean, in, in some cases, okay, yeah, you're right. But the other case, like, you know, I was. 14 like why can't I do whatever I want at 14 right and uh, I just got really sick of having bad answers and then um, you know again I was definitely at a, at a competitive uh, state in triathlon during my PT school time and so I just got frustrated by the lack of education that we found um, in a lot of our schooling with respect to you know how to work with you know athletic folks who were always kind of pushing the needle and you, know, you talk about, oh, tissues need to recover. Well, when you're training at a high level, tissues don't have as much time to recover. And how do you balance that off? And, and so I think that a lot of it led to just unanswered questions in my career, right? Just not getting good information. And mm -hmm. then, so that was definitely the, the drive to try and do better. Um, because, you know, I went to PE school. You learn how to assess things. You don't learn how to treat anything because you don't have time. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so then I just wound up in a very interesting situation. Uh, we had a new department chair come down at University of Virginia uh, from Harvard, and she had a huge startup package, which means a bunch of money to invest uh, in facilities and personnel in a research lab. And we launched uh, this venture called, uh, well, it was basically the, the, uh, a biomechanics research lab, but 
within that, we launched this thing called the Speed Clinic. And the Speed Clinic was one of the, I think, one of the things I'm most proud of in my career because, you know, again, it's one thing to put out research that shows how average results to, you know, general apply to a generation of, you know, average athletes, but it doesn't show how things apply to an N of one, right? How things apply to you. Mm-hmm. And so what we were able to do is open our, our doors, not just for research. We did research and I do tons of research, but, um, you know, we actually were able to have individual athletes come in and get assessed and find out, okay, where do I fall on the spectrum of things I need to work on? And how is this, you know, how is the data that you're able to measure drive your recommendations for me in terms of mobility or strengthening or run stride analysis or gate cues or whatever, right? So um, I think that one, it was, you know, I was the only person in the world able to do that at the time and, uh, and uh, you know, trying to take all information and push it out and teach it. So I uh, definitely carved out a niche myself and um, yeah, it's been fun. I mean, the, the whole, I always tell folks like my job has been to put out information and tools for runners because uh, most folks have not been able to do that. And I think I've been pretty, been pretty lucky, pretty, worked pretty hard, very pretty successful in treating as athletes and uh, just trying to put out information to help more folks. So. I love it. And so it's so interesting. And I guess maybe I'm thinking about your swim background. I feel like with running, most people just kind of assume running is you go outside and you run and that's that's sort of all there is to it but then if if you have a swim background you know you know you get all of this like stroke analysis and all of these like little tiny tweaks that you make to your swim stroke to be more efficient and effective and you really focus on technique but running it doesn't feel like anyone ever talks about technique exactly <laughs> you just hit the nail on the head i mean it drives me nuts. It's like people say, oh, running, it's so simple. You just put one foot in front of the other. I'm like, no. okay, I understand from a mental standpoint, it might be put your shoes on and go out the door. But you know what? In terms of biomechanics, running is tremendously complex. It is not simple. And I know mentally you want to make it simple, but the stresses it puts in your body, it's just not, right? Yeah. And uh, and like you said, it's like you know, other sports, every other sport, <laughs> is putting tons of time and attention on technique and uh and we're finally getting to the point where runners are starting to talk about this and be a little open. Um, some of the research out there has been frustrating because you know they take athletes and they say, okay, come in and run this way and like now change this. And people are like, well, I don't know how to move that way. And like, okay, we'll see. Cueing your gait doesn't make it doesn't work. And I'm yes. like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> what well, your study's flawed because you ask somebody to do something they don't even know how to do if you have them stand up, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you say move your leg differently. Like, I don't know how to do that. How do you expect them to process that? You know, that new cue when they're, you know, when their foot's in contact with a quarter a second or less, right? And so it's just, it, it's a lot of things go into it to make sure people know and feel how to move properly so that they can run better. Yes, I'm so glad you said that because yeah, I I've seen you know a lot of those headlines and I mean I've I've probably been guilty of writing some of those headlines. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, it's what happens when you're in endurance endurance sports journalism for a lot of years. Um, sure. But I've always been yeah kind of critical of that because I feel like at some point the person's natural stride is not actually going to be serving them if they're you know loping with like one shoulder like six inches below the other and like you know, butt sticking way out the back and like, you know, tripping over their feet like that, that can't possibly be effective. So, right. <laughs> um, so you, um, is running rewired your most recent book? Yeah. It okay. is. So yeah. Anatomy for Runners is my first book I put out and that book still sits in a very like interesting spot. It's, uh, it's, it's written for basically clinicians and, uh, who don't really understand running, but understand how to treat the body. It's written for coaches who understand the physiologic side of running, but not the biomechanics side. And it's written for 
I would say type A and really, uh, you know, re- really the, the, you know, the more, the more uh, I'd say passionate uh, for knowledge runners who do want to invest the time in. That book is not written as a one hit Instagram post where it you know, tries to make things simple. It's really giving you answers. Um, but again, it's, it's a lot of theory and a lot of self-test. Um, the one thing people kept calling for was, hey, can we make this a little more for the masses? And can we also put some more, you know, Running Rewired, um, you know, really made the leap into having like, okay, I get some theory. I want a little bit more simple explanation. But at the end of the day, how do I really go about fixing these things? So it's a little more tailored to, you know, look, if here's how to structure your, you know, your training program, right? It's not just about mileage, but how to structure your program into uh, ensuring that you are, you know, sh- ready to show up, ready for every run, durable, and, uh, and ready to perform well. So it's got a lot more uh, take-home, actionable stuff to kind of, uh, you know, yeah, jump into. Mm-hmm. Should be noted, we have both of those books on our bookshelves because we are nerdy type A's, but we also really like a simple breakdown. <laughs> so they're both there. Um, <laughs> what I wanted to ask you, though, is actually um, so Running Rewired, the uh, the subtitle is Stability, Strength, and Speed. Um, so I wanted, I was hoping maybe you could kind of run through like why each of those things matter. And I was wondering, like, is the order of those things, the stability, strength, and speed, is that on purpose that you listed them like that? Or that's yeah. a great question. <laughs> <laughs> it just like, it caught my eyes. I, it, like I said, as you emailed, it was literally sitting on my coffee table cause I'd been flipping through it. So I've been thinking yeah, about so, it a lot. <laughs> yeah. So this is a great question. Okay. So let's, let's, let's talk about one thing in terms of big picture first. So it, you know, you can use different you know, semantics and terminology if you want, but how I view things, right, if I'm going to ask an athlete to take time away from the sport, I have to give them a reason, right? And so mm-hmm. every athlete, no matter what your sport is really, but um, you need to do things going to make sure that you can steer your body stable and maintain postural control, right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, running with your ideal alignment, not just at your first, you know, one kilometer of your run, but making sure you can hold that for your entire length of every training session. Because we know that athletes get tired, right? And when you get tired, if you shift and fall into kind of a back-seated arch-back position, or you you know let yourself slump forward from your mid-back, like we know that that changes a bunch of things about your running uh, economy and running, running performance. So we want to make sure you can maintain your postural control. Steering your part straight means being able to let your leg move, uh, you know, under control front to back and not having, you know, those of you who've seen the picture of yourself in a race where your knees collapsed and going one way, your hips going the other, your foot's going one way. Like that's all a sign that you don't know how to steer your parts very well. Right. So I've put all that work in what I call precision training. Right. So that's not work that makes you tired. Um, it's work that actually trains your brain to think about and feel position sense, because when you do that, you start to really, you know, again, like we, we talked about, you know, if you can feel things, you can move better, right? So that's how you start to build better connections. That's why the title of the book is called Running Rewired because it's not strengthening muscles. It's more changing that neural awareness and, and making yourself uh, have better control over your body. Mm-hmm. So then we, then we have what I call performance training, right? So people always say, well, what matters for athletes? So I'm like, okay, well, if you're talking about performance, Almost in all sports, the single most important value is something we call rate of force development, which is how quickly you can apply your strength down to the ground. Um, so to do that, you have to have a certain baseline of strength, but you also have to put in some more explosive type training, which is why we don't just sit there and say, you know, if you can eventually work up to the point where you squat 300 pounds, you'll be a better runner. That that doesn't happen, right? So, um, Sadly. Yeah, it, sadly, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, in terms of, so that that's the reason why, you know, those terms are in there, right? Stability, strength, and speed. But if you talk about, you know, are those, are they, you know, linear or can you kind of hit them at random? That's a great question. I'd say that 
most runners, uh, I'm not being pokey about anybody, but most runners don't bring enough stability training to the table. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we get into running. And I don't mean to be, again, poke things, but uh, Joe V. Hill is one of the most legendary uh, running coaches in the U.S. And he has a great perspective. He's like, you know, it's interesting being a coach. And, you know, the people who come to me as athletes are the ones that didn't make the cut in football, baseball, and basketball, <laughs> right? Like, they're the, you know, most runners tend to be less savvy in terms of body coordination and stability. And so, you know, they say, oh, I can, I can go run. And they can. But again, that baseline capacity of strength and stability isn't really there. And so they just throw a bunch of volume at their, let's say, uncoordinated movement habits. And then we wind up with things going downhill pretty quickly. And so, you know, it's been my goal to, to not let that happen, right? So I want to make sure that you've got that awareness and body control, um, not just in the off season, right, but throughout the whole year. And, and again, that, that kind of what I call precision training shouldn't take up that much time. We're talking, you know, you know 15, to 20, uh, 20, excuse me, 15 to 20 minutes a few times a week is all you need to expose your nervous system to some ways to think about and feel and move differently. So um, that needs to happen all year, right, not just off-season time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you talk about strength and power, there's certainly times of the year where we, we manipulate these things. I think, you know, you've seen a lot of the old school stuff come into, oh, we only lift during the off season. And then we had this kind of classic periodization blocks where we only work on strength this time of the year, only power this time of the year. Um, those methodologies have cr- pretty much crumbled uh, over the past decade uh, with, you know, different types of training emphasis to show that your body needs to be exposed to different stimulus to get change, right? So mm-hmm. um, if you have an ideal you know, obviously you have to have a point of entry, right? Where do we start, right? And for most people, it's going to be starting with more, again, the stability type work, precision type work. Uh, but once you start to get to the point where you're being consistent in your plan, you've got something you follow all year long, you should always be putting in some aspects of stability work, strength work, and power work into your uh, into your training. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the, the last part of that is speed. And I feel like that's where everyone just kind of skips to. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So, so is that yeah. just sort of like the first two equal the third? Yeah, no. <laughs> no, okay. No. So, all right. Let's, so, again, when we talk about speed, right? So, then you're talking about a few things here. So we can talk about speed in terms of plyometrics, which is jumping around. Uh, and we can talk about speed in terms of actually doing speed work. Okay. So, um, let, let's, let's be realistic here. If you said, what's one great thing to do uh, for running? We said, well, you want to learn to apply force down to the ground better. So, guess what? Sprinting and running strides is a great great, great drill and great training uh, stimulus for runners, okay? Because what you're doing is you're forcing your body to run really fast. And when you run really fast, your contact time goes down a whole lot. And so you force your muscles to have to work harder. You force your body to have to think about form. You force your body to do a bunch of great things. But you can't sprint every day, right? I mean, no one does that, not even sprinters, uh, because we get tired doing that, right? It's a big demand on our body. So you have to look at, you know, how much uh, load am I putting on my body for the capacity to run fast? So if you said, okay, wait a second, what did he just say? Let's decode that. He just said that making me run fast forces my muscles and tendons to work really, really hard really quickly, which is great, but you can't do that every day. So how can I get my muscle and tendons to work harder more often throughout the week, right? In a way, it's not going to be detrimental. So that's when we talk about the strength and power work, right? So if you're going to talk about strength work now, 
strength work can get muscles to, to, to work in overtime, right? So if you lift your pen up off the ground, you're not using that many muscle fibers. If you lift a 200-pound uh, weight off the floor, you have to use a lot more muscle fibers. And doing that isn't just training muscle size. It's training your brain to use all those muscle fibers more efficiently, right? Mm -hmm. We're teaching your brain to get simultaneous contraction. So that's what strength work comes into play. But strength work needs to be translated into move faster, right? So that's we talk about power work, which for most folks, we like to use the term plyometrics. And I'm, I'm fine with that. Um, plyometrics can be body weight. Plyometrics can be, you know, let's say you're, if you only squat with 300 pounds, you can be squatting with a 45-pound bar quickly. That's a plyometric, right? It could be doing just, just changing the rate at which you move. And, and so uh, in running with wire, I go through a bunch of detail on how we do compound sets and build some different things in. But you don't have to even go that deep. You can just talk about, you know, what's a plyometric? Well, plyometric is getting your body as off the ground as fast as possible. And most athletes, not just runners, most athletes do plyometrics totally wrong um, <laughs> it, because they just spend too much time on the ground and they double bounce, which when you come down from a landing, instead of coming down and like smacking the ground and going right back up again, they tend to kind of bounce twice. And again, that works muscle strength, which is great, but it doesn't work the explosive nature of how to get your body off the ground quicker. And so I spent a lot of time coaching athletes. Here's how you do plyometrics, right? You have to get off the ground quickly, okay? Um, I'm going to go real quick and just – everybody's probably seen the Instagram picture of someone in a CrossFit gym doing like a box jump, you know, something chest high, right? Oh, of um, course. And, and yeah, it looks so tough, right? That is the absolute stupidest thing in the world to do if your goal is to improve rate of force development. And I know I probably ruffled a lot of feathers, okay? It's like, no, but I'm just going to pull that quote out. That's the entire <laughs> episode right there. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, if you talk to strength performance coaches around the world, you won't find anybody who has athletes do jumps that are super high. And the reason why, if you're forcing your body to jump super high, you force your body to spend a longer time on the ground, which is the exact opposite of what you want to do, right? You want to train the neuromuscular system to be quick. So doing loaded box jumps is great, right? But like shin height, knee height, that's as high as you have to go, okay? And that's where you get into balance of what's your goal. If your goal is to do some fun athletic pursuits and you like CrossFit, that's fine. And part of CrossFit is doing things like that that you score for competitions. But it, it, you know, that's, it builds general athleticism. But if you said, hey, my goals are to have this transmit, translate to my sport and like I want to see time of the clock go down, that's not how you train, right? You have to make sure that you, you're doing things that are specific. So again, if you're doing things which are, quote, too complex for you to think about, too complex in terms of height, too complex in terms of landings don't make sense to your brain, you need to make things more and more and more basic to get to the point where, hey, I'm willing to jump quickly off the ground, right? That's super, super critical to learn the skill of explosive uh, sport, uh, force development. So what I'm hearing is I'm going to need to change the angle of my camera for my shorter box jump to make it seem much more legit <laughs> than it actually is. Just, yeah, just pan out. Get yeah, just want to make sure that I've got this right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like just from like above or something. I don't know. I'll figure yeah, but, it out. But, but seriously, for, for those of you listening, like I don't have any of my athletes. And in fact, I'll tell you right now, there's not one single strength conditioning expert I respect out in the field who has athletes do box jumps higher than about knee height. Mm -hmm. There's just no need, right? Um, so, yeah, you don't have to go high. You have to go quick, right? So if you're doing a box jump and you jump up, right? I, I always tell here's how I cue things. So if you're just going to do a regular box jump, this could be you have a box in your garage, you have a, a picnic table out in the backyard, you have a retaining wall. Don't worry about what you're jumping onto. Just make sure it's solid, right? But when you jump up, okay, that's great. 
when you land, I want you to land softly, right? Land really soft to try and be quiet when you land. And I want you to pause for a second, okay? And I want you to pretend you, I, I have a burrito in your hand. I'm making you take a bite of the burrito, right? <laughs> so just hold that little mini squat for like, you know, one second, okay? And then when you come back and jump down, I want you to think about pushing your feet through the floor even before your feet hit the ground. You can pretend the ground is glass. And I want you to shatter the glass with your feet as you explode back up to that little mini squat position at the top of your box again, okay? And here's the reason why. When we talk about plyometrics, we have to overload that tendon response. When you jump up and you land the box, guess what? There's not that much load when you land because you're jumping up. It's when you jump down. That's when you've got that increased velocity of your body coming down to the ground that challenges that tendon reflex, right? And, and we have to kind of build that coordinated pattern to jump up quicker, right? So that's why you're doing a box jump. It's not to jump up. It's to learn to jump down quicker. Okay. Oh, I love that. That's like a whole different way of thinking about the, the box jump. Totally. Very cool. So the top of your jump, take a little bite of your burrito, chew it. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know, explode down again, shatter the glass at the bottom and blast your body back up top. That's what you're trying to do. Love it. Um, okay. I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit here. I, I wanted to talk about you know, we're talking about running form and running. I want to talk about like running posture a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have, and I realize it's different for every, t- every person, obviously, but you kind of actually alluded to it when we were talking about stability where it's, you know, that if you actually look at a picture of you from a race, and I think this goes to that like joke of like, you know, what you think you look like, what your friends think you look like, what you actually look like. Yep. And again, we've got like the Frankenstein running. Um, do you have any cues that you have people think about in terms of like getting into a good posture while running? Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. So let's talk about a few of these things. Most of us tend to stand with our body in a, in a very backseat position, right? Because when we stand up, it's very easy for us to lock our knees, okay? Uh, because if you lock your knees, you don't have to do anything for your quads. We mm-hmm. tend to shift our pelvis forward, and we call an anterior pelvic tilt, and we tend to arch our back, and we hang out the ligaments in front of the hip called the wide ligaments, right? So, and that's the way a lot of us stand. And then we put our shoes on and expect things to be perfect, and that's not how it works, right? So... You know, the way you stand, the way you default to when you're standing is kind of the position we tend to default to as we run. And not everyone, but the vast majority of runners tend to stand and run in the back seat, right? So um, a, dr- a drill I have every athlete do, um, and, and let's be clear here, if you need to do this, do it, right? I mean, the, the number one thing runners hate to do is stop during a run. And one of the most important things to do, if I have to give you a little self-test in a second, if this feels awkward, please do me a favor, stop every half a mile of your run for the next two, two weeks and just build this habit of where the heck am I in space, right? Where is my body falling? Where am I feeling things to be? Because once you start to pay attention to this, it's really easy to do it, but you just have to know where that position is. So mm-hmm. here's a little test I want you to do. I want everybody to stand up and I want you to do, relax, right? Just totally relax and just think about for a second as you're standing, where is weight felt on your feet? Is it on the forefoot? Is it evenly split between the forefoot and the heel, or is it mostly back on the heel? Okay, and just ask yourself that question, just relax. Then I want you to do me a favor. Take your right hand, I want you to put your right hand on your belly button, and I want you to put your left hand up on your sternum, your breastbone, okay? And what I want you to do for me is, I want you, because most of us are gonna feel a lot of weight on our heels, and I want you to make sure that you keep your belly button still, and your hand your belly button, take your left hand, which is on your ribcage, and I want you to let your rib cage, rib cage flare up and let your hand go up, and you'll feel more weight go back to the heels, right? We're gonna arch our back further, right? That's not what we wanna do. 
Now we're going to take our hands and our chest, and we're going to drop our rib cage down in front, right? So the front of the ribs drop down enough to the point where you feel weight evenly split between your heels and the ball of the feet. That's your new take-home zero point, okay? And now let's go too far the other way. So drop your left hand and your chest down too far, and you feel weight go more towards the ball of the foot, right? You're almost going to feel your heels actually unweigh and come off the ground. Now let's come back to that middle point, okay? So now that we have weight split evenly between the heel and the ball of the foot, I want you to do me a favor. Stand on one leg, and now take your hands off your belly button and your chest, and I want you to shine your palms forward, okay? And what shining your palms forward does, it opens up your shoulder blades to avoid that kind of hunched position most of us are in throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Do this. I know everybody's like, oh, listen to it. No, do it, okay? And do me a favor. Go run, and then stop after a half a mile. Spend three seconds, okay? Do this same little check-in drill. Find that point where your chest is sunk down kind of over your pelvis, right? Open up the hands to check your shoulder blade position. Go run another half mile and keep doing every half mile to build that conscious awareness of where the heck am I in space? Because if you can maintain better postural alignment, you'll have less, uh, less biomechanical stress and better running economy. Um, it, it, so just to pivot here for a second, there, there's, not, there's really poor research in the effect of running posture and body mechanics. And, uh, and so I was, I was asked to do a presentation for a conference uh, a few years ago. And, uh, and I was like, well, there's not much out there. So you know, I'll just do my own little study because I have a research lab. So I just had runners come in, and I said, okay, do me a favor. Go run, right? Just go run. And I, and I measured a bunch of things in terms of body stress and economy and a bunch of factors. And I said, okay, now I want you to run with an arch back, okay? And just let them run that way. And said, okay, now do me a favor. Lean forward, like you're kind of collapsing your torso forward a little bit. And, and go run again, right? And so I just had data of what we call somebody's neutral position, right? Somebody's arch back and somebody uh, collapsed forward or slumped forward. And we found that uh, when, you, when you tend to go in the back seat, you're working harder to run, okay? It actually costs more effort to run the same speed. How much is about 1.7, about 3%. When you actually went forward, what most of us tend to do when we get real tired, right? Mm-hmm. With just a stride and a bunch of parameters, you can actually run 8% less effectively in that position. Because, it, again, yeah, it's just a lot, right? I mean, people are talking about these 4% shoes. Well, guess what? Just by having poor posture, you can cause 8% worse uh, running economy. So let's not do that, right? Uh, and in terms of body stress, you saw a bunch of things change in terms of knee loads and impact stresses and a bunch of other factors when you shift your posture around. So, I mean, again, posture isn't a strength issue, right? It's just mostly an awareness issue. And yeah, it takes time to, to work on it for sure. But you can make some pretty profound changes in your running economy and your body stress just by making sure you can hold your body in better position. Oh, I love it. And for some reason, all I can think of right now is um, in Scooby-Doo, whenever like Scooby and the gang are running from people, if you notice, Velma always runs with the forward tilt and Shaggy always runs with the backward <laughs> lean, just in case anyone ever needs like a cartoon example of this. <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought about this in decades, but I, now I'm like, yeah, actually, yeah, you're right. I, I do remember seeing that. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. New new research for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then what about head posture when you're running? I know this is especially for trail runners who run with their heads just like down on, you know, like just looking straight down at their feet. This is a huge problem I have. Um, any any advice for where your head position should be? Yeah. So, again, um, one of the biggest things I focus on with trail runners is kind of the pan and scan, right? And I think a lot of us tend to look at, you know, the rock we're about to run over. Don't do that. You want to be looking, you know, not into the horizon, right, the sunset, but you should be looking about 15 to 20 feet in front of you most times in the trail. And, you know, 
your brain's pretty darn smart, right? When you see rocks, we tend to pre-plan for things. And yeah, it might be a big, you know, if you know, you're running on some rugged trails, it might be a boulder shin high you have to look at for a second and get over. But you should be looking very much in front of you. If you have to glance down, try and make that happen from your eyes. Um, yeah, for sure. If you lead with it with a big kind of slumped head forward position, it's going to cause your torso to round forward, uh, which is going to cause tons of havoc for your running form. So get used to the fact of kind of trusting yourself and what I call pain and scan. Find some terrain. Look what's important in front of you, right? Is there a root? Is there a rock? Is there some off-camera stuff? But your body will make adjustments and kind of plan for that. So, uh, yeah, definitely don't stare straight at your feet. Yeah. And it's actually kind of amazing. I A couple of years ago, I was doing a couple, like, parkour lessons because I was super intrigued by it. And what I was shocked about is, like, the precision jumping in it. And I kind of assumed yeah. I would suck at it. And, you know, it's like jump, you know, from between these like sidewalk cracks and land on this sidewalk crack. And I was like, I can't do that. Like, not because yeah. I couldn't jump far enough, just because like the precision of that just seemed crazy. But it's actually super easy. It gets amazing totally. what your brain can do. And yeah, yeah like, if you can apply that to the trail, you're not going to need to just be staring down the whole time. Yeah, exactly. So you, you didn't become a stronger athlete. You didn't become a better jumper. It's called neuroplasticity, right? You gave your brain a skill. Your brain's like, huh, I'm terrified. And you practiced it. And your brain goes, oh, okay, I can do this, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an exposing yourself to something new and learning a new skill. And that's, that's what we're talking about. So that's great. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to kind of like flip this around. Um, I have a couple of like Post, I think they're posture-related issues, and I'd love to get your take on them. So these are problems that we've we've heard from people who've who've written in that say that they have these like certain aches and pains running. So I'm curious if you can like relate them to postural issues, and I think you probably can, given what we've we've talked about. Um, so the the first one is actually kind of weird: um, upper arms getting like painful or stiff partway through the run. Any yeah, thoughts on so- that? For sure. So, um, again, most of us tend to run. Uh, do me a favor, right? So I want you, if you're sitting down or standing up, it's fine. I want you to take your shoulders. I want you to shrug them up really, really, really high, okay? Um, and now try and breathe in deeply, <laughs> okay? Right. It doesn't feel very good, right? And now relax your shoulders down and take a big breath, right? It's much easier to breathe, right? So most of us, as we run, tend to tense up. And again, a lot of us have that kind of slump over position for being on our computers and our phones and our tablets all day long. And so what I want you to think about doing is opening up the rib cage, right? So um, one simple cue, most of us tend to think about when we run, we swing our arms forward. And that's a horrible thought process for a bunch <laughs> of reasons. One, uh, because, yeah, it really is. Because, one, your arms, the purpose of your arm swing when you run is to, is to help balance counter-rotation of your lower body. That's all. That's why we move arms, right? So um, if you're running in a style which has you reaching forward a whole lot, it tends to make your shoulder blades shrug up, which gets into the stiffness you're talking about. But the other thing, I'll give you a, a, free, a free benefit off this too, if your arm goes forward on your right, guess what happens? Your left leg wants to swing out too far forward too. And I think one of the big things that I think this whole community is made aware is that, you know, the problems with overstriding or contacting too far in front of your body. And so guess what? If you cue your arms to swing more behind you and less in front of you, you not only help breathing, but you also cue your body to contact closer to your body. So even before we have con- uh, a conversation about cadence and step rate and all that kind of stuff, if you can just pull your legs closer to your body, what you tend to have is, again, less impact stress on the knee joints and a bunch of other factors. So you can help some postural issues as well. So what you're going to do, instead of thinking about reaching your fist forward, there's unless you're sprinting, there's never a point in running where your elbows should move in front of your torso. Okay, So your hands are going to go in front of you, sure, but your elbows should go behind you 
to basically inline with your torso, behind you to inline with your torso. So instead of thinking about reaching your hands forward, think about uh, kind of pushing your elbows back behind you as you run. And that helps relax your shoulder blades back and down. It'll keep your fingertips nice and loose and help you breathe easier all at once. Oh, I love that. And okay, you mentioned fingertips, so now I have to ask. Thoughts on running, holding a phone in one hand? Yeah, I mean, I think, that, you know, there's there's two things. One, I mean, there's reality, right? Some people have clothes. It, it's easy to put a phone into and tuck it and, and feel nice. And some Phones people, are so yeah. big now. It's unfair right, to us small people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you have to hold your phone, it's not the end of the world. Just change hands once in a while. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think that you, know, you could, if, you're, if you notice that you're running, you have a super bear grip on your phone, it's probably causing some issues. But if you're switching hands and holding it semi-loosely, that's probably the best thing. Um, it, you know, the best, you know, arm strap is a good idea for most of us for sure. Uh, but yeah, if you're holding your hand or your phone in your hand, it's not the end of the world. Um, I mean, I would say that if you're holding a lot of weight in your hand, uh, it's probably not ideal. I mean, it's, you know, ultra runners just crack me up because they're holding, uh, you know, the new thing now you have these, you know, uh, water bottles that have little kind of, uh, neoprene sleeves to put your hands in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the worst place <laughs> I want to hold, you know, 16 ounces of fluid that's jostling around. Um, that doesn't make sense. It's a lot of weight. It's moving a whole lot and you have to shift it back and forth the whole, you know, every single stride. So that's something I'd say that fundamentally, I just can't see the the role behind biomechanically being anywhere near helpful. It's uh, like running but, with a uh, shake weight. Ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah. Go do that. See how you like it and then come back and ask me the same questions. So. <laughs> oh, so good. Um, okay. Next. <laughs> Moving I'm, down I'm, the... <laughs> I, 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 I miss the shake weight. I miss that whole era. Anyway. I know, right? I'll, I mean, rollerblades are back now, so it's only a matter of time. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, okay. Moving slightly down the body. Um, nodding up in your like low back top of hip during runs, especially sort of on like uphill situations or like later in the run. Yeah. So again, that goes back to the, the vast majority of people tend to fall back to that arch back position, right? So you, know, you have hips, right? Hips allow your thigh to swing forward and swing back. Your hips are not your low back. And so many runners, because they don't have good coordination in their hip joints, when they run, right, they tend to actually extend their low back to get your, their leg back behind them versus they're extending their hip joint. So part of this is that little posture check-in we talked about. And part of this is learning how to properly kind of tap in and tune into what your hip joints do. Um, I have an exercise I use all all my runners when I start with them. It's called the pigeon hip extension. I've got this in my books. I've got this online in various forms. You can just Google it. Uh, But basically, it's a way to make sure that you're able to actively recruit your hip muscles to do what they're supposed to do without moving your low back. Right. And so that's a really critical point. But it's not, again, not a strength issue. It's a coordination thing to make sure you can move your hips independently of your spine. And so many runners have not learned this skill. And so you just talk about, oh, well, my coach said do this. And it's like, I don't know how to do that. Right. So, kind of going back, we started with you have to learn to develop precision control around your hip joint. So, um, there's actually those of you who want to do this, if you just Google um, uh, Desherry uh, running rewired uh, hip circuit. There's a whole video we did online. It's free, uh, and you can go look at to, to kind of learn how to, again, separate out hip control from spine control, which is absolutely critical. Again, the whole circuit takes, I think, 12 minutes. Uh, and, again, it's a great exposure for your brain to learn to move differently. Oh, awesome, and I'll link to that in the show notes, too, just to make it easy for people to find. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely one that I've noticed as I've as I've like upped mileage. You know, it's it's mile like twenty five in a trail run kind of situation. But I definitely notice like my low back tends to start tightening up, and I think it's entirely like that's exactly why. So yeah, Molly, let, let's stick into that for a second because it's interesting, right? So this is one of the things I hear all the time with runners. Like I'm fine, but then when I get to my longer runs, things tend to hurt. It's only a problem. I run yep. Long. Okay, well, let's decode that. What you just told me is you don't have the skill and muscular endurance to hold position for the whole you know, duration of what you're training for. That, mm-hmm. that means your training program is not working, right? So what, what I get into is, okay, let's find the black holes in terms of you just talked about two things. If you're getting forms changing when you're fatigued, that means we have to work on some postural work, which, yes, goes down to awareness, but also making sure your core work is appropriate. Um, and then also we have to talk about what we, what we just did, right? Separating out hips from, from low back. So, you know, if you're somebody who's like, oh, I have problems and I run long and I get tired, well, you know what? Fix them because most of you are trying to do some long race, you know, and, and hit a certain target goal. And I think that most runners go, oh, it'll just go away. I'll just keep running short. And no, it doesn't, right? I mean, running doesn't fix these problems, right? Fixing no. these problems fixes these problems. Ooh, Yeah. I feel like that that might be the the quote of the episode, uh, yep. even though it's I'm like, darn it, I have to do more work. I already yep. do stuff. Well, <laughs> but yeah, and again, it doesn't take longer, right? I mean, again, I'm not looking to say, okay, if you're already doing you know ten minutes of core work, now add these other twenty five minutes on a day. We're just trying to say, look, are the things you're doing working? If it's not, let's change it up because I mean, the whole goal is about doing all this you know complementary stuff is to make sure it complements you. It's not cross training. It's not looking to take extra time. It's looking to make sure, again, that you are a more robust athlete, that athlete can actually go and put some running mileage in and maintain control of your body. Yeah. And I think what you just said, it's not cross-training. Like, that's so important because I think people, runners and cyclists, get really kind of caught up in, like, anything that isn't on the bike or on the run is cross-training. And it's like, no, it's it's complementary training. It's not. Uh, 100%. <laughs> that's, that's a slide when I teach. I literally have that slide in my presentation. I'm like, look, we have to make sure that all these things – you know, we're trying to tell runners, look, we're doing different things to make, or we all athletes, right? We're doing different things to make sure that when you show up for your training or show up for your your race, your meet, whatever it is, right? Like that's the best version of you that's out there. And, you know, that doesn't come from just training your engine. It comes from training the chassis as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, so good. Uh, it's, it's like you give these presentations often or something. <laughs> Talk about this a lot. I, I don't know. For, for decades. For Weird. decades. Yes. <laughs> Um, and the other the other weird one that I wanted to talk about, and this kind of goes into what we talked about before we started recording with your, your latest product and with the yoga toe progressions that you've had, um, like ankles kind of popping frequently during runs or like not like not spraining, not straining, like whatever the like move right before that is. Yeah. So this is interesting, right? So if you were to tear your ACL, right, you go for surgery most of the time. If you tear a ligament in your shoulder, you usually have surgery, right? And they're like, what is a, an ankle sprain? You tore a ligament in your ankle. And most of us say, oh, you know what? I just tore a ligament in my ankle. It's fine, right? It'll, it'll be fine. Like, mm-hmm. no, your joint became structurally less stable, okay? Um, and I've done a bunch of research on this when I was at UVA with uh, one of my colleagues, Jay Hurdle. And Jay Hurdle does, he's probably like the world expert on ankle instability and ankle sprains. And, uh, you know, what we found is that when people you know, who don't sprain, right, when you have them run, they have a certain pattern in the way they move their bodies. And then so when you look at people with chronic ankle sprains, what we tend to see is they shift their entire pattern, right? They tend to stay more on the outside 
excuse me, more in the outside of their foot and ankle, which is how you sprain, right? So what you're saying is if you're somebody who tends to sprain or even not kind of roll your ankles all the time, before your foot's in the ground, you're in a worse position. You're in the kind of riding the line of injury. And so what we have to do is we have to make sure that we, we rebuild that connection point between the foot and the ground. Um, and that comes back to what are you doing from the foot, right? Because your ankle's popping because it's literally shifting back and forth and becoming unstable. And we want to work on rebuilding that foundation in terms of how the foot contacts the ground. So how do you do that, right? And so the first thing is, again, coordination first, right? We talked about, you know, in the hips, we talked about learning to separate your hip from your back. From the foot, we talk about the same thing. Your foot's not a brick, right? It, it actually is 26 bones that are all very mobile. Um, and you don't stop it from moving by sticking a, uh, you know, a post inside your shoe, um, like we've done, you know, for years with insoles, right? It doesn't, you don't stop the foot from moving. What you want to do is learn how to control it as it moves because your foot does need to move, right? Um, and so one of the things we try to do is to teach runners and athletes all around the, around the, the gamut, right? To learn to, to isolate control on their feet. So the toe yoga exercise is interesting because, you know, if you look at your, your hand for a second, I ask you to curl your fingers back and forth and now move your thumb back and forth, that's really easy, right? We have good dexterity in our hands. Um, and we look at our fingers. Our fingers have three joints in them, and our thumb has two, right? So our fingers and our thumb have very different purposes. Fingers mm -hmm. curl around, thumbs locked in opposes, right? When you look at your foot, it's the same thing. Your little toes have three joints. Your big toe has two. And our t little toes are great for picking our socks up off the floor, right? Um, but that's not how we run in fact if you those of you who've done like marble uh pickups and towel curls and stuff like that what you're doing is actually training the pattern of picking the ball of your foot up off the ground now that makes no sense for me considering that running is a sport we have to have contact with the ball of the foot on the ground right so, we want to train things that are specific to our sport right so we want to make sure we learn to keep uh, adequate pressure across our ball of our foot uh, as we're running cutting jumping etc so Toe yoga is a great way to build that coordination inside the feet and separate out our big toe from our little toes. And for most athletes, this is really, really, really hard. And I get that, okay? But again, everybody has in your brain, you have parts of your brain dedicated just towards your big toe, like literally. Yeah. So if you want to practice better control of that location in your brain, what you have to do is start to move that way because we learn through movement, right? So uh, we talk about kind of building a foundation of can I isolate muscles around the big toe, which are really influential and control the arch, from little toes, which don't really have a purpose much more than, again, picking things up off the floor. Um, so uh, to kind of get into what you alluded to, I, I developed this product called Mobo Board. And what Mobo is, it's a modified rocker board that uh, that basically challenges that control uh, in terms of our body, right? Because it's, it, it moves or it rocks around the axis of what we call our subtalar joint, which is the joint in which we protein and supinate around, which people talk about all the time. And it's got a cutout in there for your little toes, so you can't grab and curl, right? You have to basically cue yourself to go over to your big toe. And most athletes get on here and go, oh, this is the thing I never knew I needed, right? And so... We talk about core control and controlling your spine. We talk about stability for our shoulder, right, to learn to control the ball in the socket. What are you doing in terms of foot stability? Most people aren't doing anything, right? So I would say this. Sure, I hope you're looking at, you know, considering a mobo board to work on this, but whether you do or not, you know, your success as an athlete, I can tell you, 
your connection points to the ground is critical and it's mandatory that you give some attention to foot and ankle stability training, just like we do for our core, just like we do for our posture, like we do for our knees and our hips. So, you know, again, train all the links in the chain. Don't train just the ones that you, you know, see in the mirror. Um, you know, what's inside your shoe matters. You actively control your foot. You don't just put a shoe on and hope for the best. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've been teaching a bunch of yoga classes for younger kids these past couple of weeks. And uh, one thing I, I do every time is, you know, we start with sort of that mountain pose of sta like standing, just, you know, straight up. And a lot of what I do is start with like kind of the yoga toes where I'm having them like try to lift up each toe and like do things with their big toe and and actually kind of coming back to the running posture, like almost getting into that and, you know, not just relying on their knees being locked out to keep them upright and all of that stuff. Um, so a lot of it, is, like the yoga toes is a very apt name for it because it is very, very much what you would do in a yoga class, but with your toes. Um, yeah, for sure. Also, like as far as like things lazy people can do, like yeah. you can do that, like <laughs> watching Netflix, Snapchatting, no problem. Like for sure. Easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so good. And yeah, I'll link to the MOBA board in the show notes too, so everyone can go check that out. It looks it looks really neat. I'm I'm like, oh, this this might be on my next order thing, because I could definitely, definitely use this. Uh, and the the last thing I kinda wanted to quickly touch on, and I know you've done a lot of research on it, is uh running shoes and running shoe design. And I know, you know, looking through your research in the last few years, you know, you've you've done a lot on the topic. So uh have you at this point in time, understanding that things change and ebb and flow and, you know, new stuff comes out all the time, what would you look for if you were looking for a running shoe right now? Uh, yeah, so most folks out there, I want, you, excuse me, I want you to run with as little as possible, right? So let's be clear here. That does not mean everybody has to run in a zero cushion, zero drop shoe. It's not at all what I'm saying. Um, what I'm saying is research shows you want a shoe that moves with you, right? Because your foot is 26 bones that do move, right? And so when we've seen shoes that are too stiff, they actually don't move with the foot, we have tendency things go downhill. We want shoes that have enough cushioning, not too much, okay? Too much cushioning, I know it's a big trend for the maximal footwear right now, but uh, what, what all that cushioning does, it lets you minimize the impact of running while it tends to uh, increase, actually, uh, joint stress, particularly on the knee. Because it allows you to overstride without actually feeling that big kapow, kapow every single time your foot hits the ground. So mm -hmm. as little cushioning as possible is helpful. Um, and, you know, one thing that hasn't been given um, – uh, enough attention is uh, how the uppers of the shoes fit to our body, right? I mean, for a while we just had laces, and then now we've had you know, different color laces, and um, you know now we have different fabrics, right? So you know companies are coming out with a lot of different uh, fabrics on the, in the uppers of the shoes, and some are super stretchy, some are super stiff. But you want to find a shoe that when you put it on and don't tie tight, when you put it on, you can tie, let's say, loose, okay, and you kind of just move your foot back and forth. The whole shoe should move with your foot. Um, because you want to make sure that, again, you allow your foot to move as it needs to. So, um, you know, those who say everybody has to run in a zero cushion, zero drop shoe, um, I can tell you it runs more, it costs more energy to run in a zero cushion, zero drop shoe. Now, do I ever do that? Sure. Because guess what? It kind of demands a little more for my body. And there's a, a time and place for that. If you said, hey, I want to go run, you know, a spe speed work with some friends, I'm never going to pull out one of my zero cushion, zero drop shoes because it costs me more energy to run that way. 
Mm-hmm. Research supports that. You can feel that yourself, right? So uh, there's a happy medium. And I think the happy medium for our runners has been, you know, these like things that look like they came out of the lunar lander. Uh, they just have like all this junk in them and they're super cushy and big and overbuilt. And we just don't need all that, right? So less is more. Um, you know, you need something for sure. But I'd say that, you know, go, go less. Yeah, and I like that you actually mentioned different shoes for different types of runs. Like I, I used to be very much into like the completely minimal shoe, and I still actually really like them for short runs. But I would never run in one for you know something over a few miles. Right. Um, and I'll use them to yeah. walk, you know, go for walks and stuff like that because I, I feel like they're good for my feet and all of that. But I, yeah, I totally. would not do my super long runs in them. So yeah, I mean, I, I always thought these, you know, you have a road bike and a mountain bike for two different reasons, right? Yeah. You've got different golf clubs for different reasons. Guess what? You're as a, as, a, as an athlete, right? You have different shoes for different things you do, right? So um, you know, it's no secret that uh, you know if you're doing a speed work session, what do you do? You put on a pair of flats, right? I mean, you don't put on a big overblown, super cushy uh, shoe because you can't get off the ground fast enough to talk about the rate of force development we said earlier. So it's yeah, you have different purposes. If you have a, if you're on a rockier, looser, longer run and you want to put a shoe on, it's got a little more cushioning. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's okay. Uh, but should that be your only shoe? Probably not, right? And when you're not running, what should you be in? Mm, I would go as, as, as you know, almost minimal, uh, you know, whatever minimal footwear is defined as these days. But I'd go as little as possible because when you're walking, there's not much mechanical demand. And there's just a little subtle proprioceptive effect we get when you can feel more with your feet. The more you feel, the more you learn. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. Uh, awesome. Okay. Well, I don't want to give away too much because I want everyone to go out and get running rewired or if they're particularly type A anatomy for runners, um, <laughs> everyone should check out MOBA board, obviously. So where, where can everyone find everything, everything that you do on the interwebs? Yeah. Um, these days so I'm shifting a bunch of content over. Uh, you can look around. I have a, a two resources. So one is, uh, an, an athletes is a blog I kept for a long time and kind of stepped away from. I'm going to start putting more stuff on there again. But I'm starting to put most things on the Mobo uh, uh, in, Mobo Instagram site, which is just uh, at mobo.board, uh, and also on the Mobo website, which is moboboard.com. If you look on there, there's a section called Thoughts. Click on that. And I'm starting to put a whole lot more interesting kind of deep thought stuff for folks to dig into. I want to have a, a good resource for runners to, so again, want to think critically and, and, and get into you know the why. It's all going to be there, in the, over there. Well, thank you so much. It was, it was great chatting with you. I'm so glad we got to connect. Thank you, Molly. It was a great, great chat. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor. Leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests. And yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs um, at consummateathlete.com, at consummateathlete on Instagram. Uh, and I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you next week. As you know, materials in cyclocross are very important. What do you think, Mr. Svennis? It's uh, very important to have the good material when it's frozen, when it's dry, when it's summer, when it's, uh, when it's wet. Uh, the tires are very important. It's all about technique. It's all about uh, the good material. So we brought the Bike Shop Show back with a cyclocross focus. Same great format, new name, Bike Shop CX. Give it a listen. I think you'll dig it. Each week, Mr. David Palin and I talk about things that go on at our bike shop. We talk about things that go on in the pro cyclocross pit at all the big races around the country. Sometimes we have industry-leading guests on the show. Sometimes it's just the two of us yapping. 
If you're at all interested in cyclocross, I think you'll like it. The bike shop is open.